All right, I wanted to start with an update on the memberships and the future of the show. This came right down to the zero hour, but I think everything's going to be okay. So here's what happened. The migration was going well. A lot of you made the move. Some of you signed up for new memberships to help fill the gaps. And some of you were even generous enough to make donations. Frankly, you took a horrible event and made it a lot better. It was heartwarming to see the level of enthusiasm and support from the BHP community. For the most part, I don't see you all. I chat with you a bit on Facebook and Twitter, but generally, it's just me, a bunch of reading material, and a mic. So to hear from people on the other side of the broadcast who value the show and didn't want it to end, well, that was pretty incredible. But there were still a bunch of people who were with Amazon, and I was trying to figure out what to do about those memberships and how to get them moved before the deadline hit. And then something amazing happened. I heard from a company called FoxyCart, who thought that they might be able to migrate the remaining Amazon subscribers to Amazon's brand new system, a move that Amazon's representatives originally didn't think was possible, hence my utter freakout. So for the last couple weeks, I've been spending a bunch of time exchanging emails and talking on the phone to the good people at FoxyCart, trying to get things set up. I didn't want to get my hopes up because it felt like it was a bit of a long shot. But as of this morning, emails have been going out to existing Amazon members. So it worked. And not a moment too soon. So basically, if you moved over to PayPal, you don't have anything to worry about. And if you stayed with Amazon, you'll get email receipts that look a little different, but functionally, everything will be the same for you. I was adamant that I wanted the Amazon migration to be seamless, and also, I wanted your information to stay exclusively with Amazon so that it would remain safe. And it looks like we got exactly what we wanted. So all in all, FoxyCard has really saved our butts on this one, and I can't thank them enough. One thing that this situation forced me to acknowledge, though, is how vulnerable the BHP is. This show is possible because 1% of its listeners support it. And I don't want to sound ungrateful, 1% support is amazing, but I thought you should know that there are less members than you think. And I'm wondering if there are people who listen to the show and think that the BHP is like one of those big, heavily funded podcasts that tend to dominate the ratings. Sometimes I even get emails to the BHP team, and the author asks that the email be routed directly to me. And I wish I had a staff and a budget to support them, but the truth is, there's just me. We're a small community. And honestly, we're rather vulnerable because 1% isn't a lot. I don't want the moon, and I've been pushing ahead on a tight budget because I love telling you these stories. But the thing that made me so panicked was that my optimistic, it will all work out in the end kind of view on the show nearly resulted in it grinding to a halt. So I wonder if we could combat some of that fragility by getting our membership up to 2%. So if you've ever thought, hey, I'd like to hear that Celtic myth or that thing about Viking culture that he mentioned, but decided against it because he thought we were big and didn't need the help, well, we're not as big as you think. Also, for what it's worth, those episodes are fun, and they're going to be a lot more as we head into the future. But enough of that. Let's get to the show. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. And this is episode 165. Wait, did Archbishop Wolfred just kill a guy? Congrats to the BHP giveaway winners, Cynthia and Claudia. I hope you enjoy Civilization IV as much as I have. It's a classic. And of course, thank you so much for supporting the BHP community. Now, normally I'd say something about membership right here, but we've already covered it. So, uh, something, something, the British History Podcast.com. 
All right, last week we talked about the impact that the church was having on internal politics within the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And that is something that we'll continue to talk about today. However, before we begin, let's talk about something strange that's happening on the continent. Denmark has unified and become wealthy enough to have kings. And their current king, Gudfred, was getting into it with Charlemagne. Now, I go into much more detail on the members-only podcasts, and if you're looking for that information, look for the episode titled The Fury of the Northmen Part 5. But the short version is that Denmark was getting worried about Francia after Charlemagne killed all those Saxons that surrendered in battle. And then, in an attempt to scare the hell out of the Danes, the Franks marched right up to the Danish border. That scare tactic, by the way, worked, because Gudfred immediately ordered the construction of a massive rampart, similar to Offa's Dyke, to protect the southern Danish border from Charlemagne. So that is a worrying development. And it looks like things kept spiraling out of control, because we then read of Gudfred conquering one of Charlemagne's Slavic allies, and then annexing northern Frisia in 810 with a fleet of 200 ships. And that is a huge deal. Charlemagne, Emperor Charlemagne, had just lost a chunk of Frisian land to this Danish king. Not only that, but he was powerful enough to float 200 ships. This was no minor barbaric pagan king. This guy was a big deal. And I guess it's no surprise that Charlemagne soon began paying tributes to Scandinavian leaders in order to protect his borders from future attacks. The tides on the continent were turning. But of course, in Britain, it doesn't look like anyone gave it a second thought. They had been struck several times by the Vikings, sure. But that was also over a decade ago, so who cares? Why worry about the wars that were happening on the continent when there are people right on your doorstep to get into petty arguments with? And central to those petty arguments was the split between Emperor Conewulf of Mercia and Archbishop Wolfred of Canterbury. And they must have been significant, because while Charlemagne was up to his eyeballs with issues on his northern border, he was still fielding letters from the Pope about this rift that was happening in Britain. That must have been a bit annoying. And actually, it reminds me of a story of when I was a lawyer and got laid off. I know, that's a strange transition, but stick with me. So years ago, I was in my office talking to my boss as he explained to me why I was being let go. Meanwhile, across town, my three-legged, toothless cattle dog, Kerouac, got an upset tummy. Well, that's an understatement. Basically, Kerouac's ass fell out, and he was splatter-painting my apartment to such an intense degree that it woke up my girlfriend who had just gotten home from a night shift. So, at the exact same time as I was getting a pink slip, I was also getting literally dozens of text messages from my girlfriend explaining in excruciating detail how she was having the worst day ever. Along with, of course, the occasional photo of actual dog shit. There isn't an emoticon that could effectively sum up the level of eye roll I was giving those texts. But yeah, I imagine that Charlemagne might have felt like I did, only a thousand times worse, when he was dealing with a pope's concern about a minor argument over land rights in Mercia. But for Emperor Conewulf of Mercia, who happened to run the territory in which the argument was centered, cleaning up the dog poo was pretty much all he could focus on. In fact, when the Pope and Charlemagne sent envoys to Northumbria to deal with the umpteenth succession crisis that they were dealing with, the envoys passed through Mercia 
And some scholars argue that they had a word with Conewolf and basically told him that he needed to make peace with the archbishop. And that sounds entirely likely, especially since we see that starting in 809, Conewolf began granting estates to Archbishop Wolfred. He was also giving him gifts of money. Things had gotten pretty bad in Mercia, and it looks like the Mercian emperor was trying to buy himself out of the problem, allowing the archbishop to consolidate and expand his holdings. Though Conewolf was still not willing to give up control of his family's religious estates in Kent. And unfortunately, Wolfred wanted those too. Well, to be fair, it seems like what he really wanted was the revenues from those estates. And let's talk about what we're dealing with here. The Archbishop wasn't saying that the properties should be in Kentish hands. He was saying that they should be in his hands. So why? Was this just simple piety and a desire to have everything under one umbrella? Perhaps but we should consider something else when weighing this. Scholars estimate that the religious houses were responsible for a full one quarter of the GDP of the entire kingdom of Kent. Can you imagine that? And get this, when Wilfred took the pallium, nearly all the Kentish monasteries and nunneries were in Mercian hands. That meant that Mercia held nearly 25% of the Kentish economy. And the two houses that Conewolf's family held, Reculver and Minster and Thanet, were the richest out of all of them. There was a tremendous amount of money at stake here. And it makes sense why Wolfred focused his attention on the properties held by Conewolf's family. If he could get his hands on them, Minster and Thanet and Reculver would enhance his personal wealth to an absurd degree. And while Archbishop Wolfred had already taken lands from Mercian overlords like Abbas Selethrith, it apparently wasn't enough. But what he was seeking was a bridge too far. Conewolf was gifted at placing his family members in positions of power, which in turn enhanced his own power. And it's unlikely that he would be eager to undo that, especially when you have an archbishopric that has historically been hostile to Mercia. It's not like he had much reason to assume that once Wilfred had all that power and money, he wouldn't just turn around and use it against Mercia. I'm pretty sure that's what everybody assumed he would do, in fact. But in denying him, he was getting on the archbishop's bad side. So trouble was brewing. Meanwhile, farther to the north, Northumbria was still dealing with succession politics. Really? That's all they seemed to deal with up there. Well, that and reading. Despite all the issues, the Library of York was still one of the best in Europe, and Lindisfarne was a major political and economic force in England. So Northumbria wasn't dark, it was just bloody. Though I do suspect that most of the books in that library were probably about creative ways to murder rival nobles. Anyway, even though deposed King Erdwolf was escorted back to his kingdom by envoys of the Pope and Charlemagne, which is quite the escort, and those envoys were the same ones who likely told Conewolf to bury the hatchet with the archbishop. We still don't have a record of Erdwolf managing to retake the throne. Now, Kirby argues that he might have managed to pull it off, and that it just wasn't recorded. However, most disagree, and point to the fact that we're told in 810 that Ainred, son of Erdwolf, replaced Eofwald on the throne of Northumbria. So Erdwolf was just skipped over. Now, it isn't clear why Erdwolf's son was the person to take the throne, but I think it's rather clear that, despite his impressive friends, 
Northumbria was not interested in giving King Erdwulf a second chance. And I can imagine that the envoys felt like they crossed the channel for pretty much nothing. But hey, at least they ousted Aelfwald and put Ainred in power, I guess. But the new King Ainred of Northumbria probably didn't appreciate that, because he immediately found himself in a whole host of problems. Not only did he have family members and friends of the rival claimants on the throne sharpening their swords, but he also had some pretty severe economic problems. The thing is that despite the fact that Lindisfarne was an economic powerhouse, the kings of Northumbria had not reformed their coinage. Honestly, Northumbria just didn't have time to fix their currency like they did in the south. So the coins produced by Ainred and others were pretty badly debased meaning that the official coins of Northumbria had non-precious or just less precious metals mixed in to stretch their value. And that's where the genius of old King Offa of Mercia shines. Sure, he killed a bunch of people, and he devastated his family tree to such an extent that when his only son died, there wasn't really anyone left. And he nearly started an international war with Charlemagne over a marriage proposal. But he was also smart as hell. And you might remember that one of the things that he did was reform the coinage in Mercia. And I know, coins don't seem that exciting. And if you want a surefire birth control method, just say the word numismatics. It's like a safe word. Everything will stop immediately. That's how little interest most people have in the study of coins. But most people are wrong. Mercia, despite the issues with Kent, Wessex, East Anglia, the Welsh, Francia, friggin' Vikings, and damn near everyone else, despite all of that, they were still going strong and economically powerful. And a big part of why Mercia was doing so well is that they had a stable currency. Merchants could use their coins with confidence. That meant that London and other Mercian trading centers were more attractive to merchants than Northumbrian trading centers. I mean, who wants to go trading in a place where you're virtually guaranteed to have to argue over the purity and weight of a penny? That's not fun. So because of the attention paid to coins, Mercia's economy was doing pretty well, and a massive portion of a king's power was tied to his wealth and his ability to bestow lands and wealth on his supporters. So Offa's Reformation also probably provided a certain degree of stability. There are many things that set the North and South apart and they each had their own strengths and weaknesses. But the weakened and unreliable currency in the north had far-reaching ramifications for the northern English. And while King Offa had ruffled feathers and even fought battles in his effort to unify and reform the southern currency, in the end, it really paid off dividends for his kingdom. Hell, Emperor Conewulf was able to be magnanimous with his gifts to Archbishop Wolfred, thanks in no small part to the economic situation that King Offa had created. See? Coins are not as boring as you think. Back to the south, things were getting a little more intense. First, we see that King Cigarette of Wessex was no longer appearing in charters as a king, or even as a sub-king. It looks like Conewulf of Mercia was tired of giving the East Saxons the appearance of self-rule. And they just annexed them. So poor Siggy was now just appearing as a dukes in 811. And then, the shit really hit the fan. Maybe. Perhaps. See, it's possible that in 811 or 812, the son of Emperor Conewulf, a guy named Chinahelm, was murdered. 
Not only that, but it's also possible that he might have been murdered by someone that had connections to Archbishop Wolfrid. But this is a twisted and gnarled path that we're about to walk, because we're going to try and take the legend of a local saint that was recorded in the 12th century and try and square it with charters and records from the 9th century. For scale, think about how Paul Revere's Midnight Ride is written about today and then try and square it with the actual event that occurred less than 250 years ago. The two events have some similarities, but a lot of differences as well. Reading most books or watching most movies, you would think that he wrote alone, screaming at the top of his lungs, the British are coming, the British are coming. But all of that is incorrect. So trying to square the story with the myth that people tell themselves is kind of difficult. And the 18th century is remarkably better documented than the 9th century. However, I think there are some things to learn from the story of St. Kenelm and the charters that refer to Chinahelm. So let's try and work this out together. Here are the facts we have. First, we have records that Conewolf had given Glastonbury to someone named Chinahelm. And Glastonbury was a mercy in holding in West Saxon lands. And this transfer was confirmed by the King of Wessex, and also the church. The argument is that that's a lot of work just for a land grant, and that given the amount of pomp surrounding this grant, as well as the sort of land being given, that this was a royal grant given to the next in line to the throne. We also have 12 other charters that list a Chinahelm in them, and the charter from 799 lists him as, quote, the king's son, end quote though I should point out that some argue that this charter might be based on a forgery. So that particular charter is somewhat controversial. Moreover, in the uncontested charters, Chinahelm is only listed as a duke's, never as a king's son. Consequently, there's a split, with some scholars believing that Chinahelm was the king's son, and others arguing that he was just an important ealdorman. However, the really important thing is the subject of the charters. Once King Cuthred of Kent, brother of Conewulf, died, suddenly we have Chinahelm specifically witnessing charters that dealt with Kentish lands. That's a remarkable shift. And while Kent was being ruled now directly by Conewulf, Chinahelm's sudden presence and involvement with Kentish matters might tell us a couple things. First, since Emperor Conewulf was directly involved in Kentish rule, Chinahelm's presence in the charters shows us that he wasn't just a local elderman that witnessed the early charters. Rather, because he was available to witness charters even in outside territories, it shows that he was someone who was close to Conewulf. He might have even been part of his court. Also, his presence could be an indication that he was being groomed for rule over Kent as the heir apparent. After all, he was getting pretty deep into the weeds of Kentish politics. And if he was being groomed for rule, it could explain the sudden resumption of hostilities between Archbishop Wolfrid and Emperor Conewulf. Since Kent and Canterbury have a history of being pretty grouchy whenever they are the subjects of Mercian overlords. Another fact to consider is how Chinahelm disappeared from their charters shortly before Conewulf ordered the royal genealogies to be copied. Now that sounds both weird and dry, I know, but it's significant because the old Woden-based genealogies, which is what we're talking about, you know, where royal families were linked back to the Allfather, well, typically they're only trotted out during times of dynastic uncertainty, 
during times where the right to rule needed to be bolstered. And here they were being copied right after Chinahelm disappears. Well, think about it. If the heir to the throne had been recently killed, that might be one such time where you want to establish that your right to rule goes way back, even back to those old pagan gods. Finally, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says nothing about a Chinahelm ruling Mercia at any point. Consequently, if there was a Chinahelm who was the son of Conewulf, he didn't live long enough to take the throne of Mercia. So that's the first batch of facts. You have somebody who's in a bunch of charters, who's getting involved in Kentish politics, and he disappears, and then you have the old Woden-style genealogy is being trotted out, and there's no record of a King Chinahelm, or Emperor Chinahelm. So there you go. And then things get really funky, because we have this story of St. Kenelm that's found in two religious texts called Vitae. But as I said earlier, these texts were recorded in the 12th century, meaning that they were recorded over 300 years after the events had passed. That's a problem for us, because details can get confused when things are passed merely by word of mouth for centuries before finally being written down. But here's what the Vitae tell us. Kenelm was Conewulf's son, and he was seven years old when his father died leaving him as the sole heir to the Mercian throne. His two sisters were left to care for him. One sister, Bergenhilda, was good. The other sister, Quenrida, wasn't. She wanted Mercia for herself, so she began to work against him. Young Kenelm then had a vision of his martyrdom. And when his nurse heard of the vision, she panicked and claimed that Quendrida was about to kill him. And the nurse was right. Quendrida was plotting with Kenelm's tutor, a guy named Ascobert. So, Ascobert and Kenelm went hunting together in the north of Worcestershire. And while Kenelm slept, Ascobert dug a grave. Personally, I would have waited until after the job was done, but I guess I'm more of a procrastinator than Ascobert. But as Ascobert was digging, Kenelm woke up, and he put a staff into the ground and it suddenly grew into this big ash tree. This unsettled Ascobert, and so he filled the grave. But he still stuck to the plan of killing Kenelm. And as he approached the young boy, with his weapon drawn, Kenelm began to sing a psalm. Undeterred, Ascobert cut off the boy's head. And then suddenly, Kenelm's hands reached up and caught his head before it hit the ground. And then a dove flew up to heaven. Meanwhile, Abbess Quindrida, now ruling over her subjects, ordered that no one speak of Kenelm's murder on pain of death. But Pope Leo was delivering a mass in Rome, and suddenly a dove flew down and delivered a note that related that the boy had been killed. So the Pope ordered that Archbishop Wolfred ensure that Kenelm was properly buried at Winchcombe, which actually was Abbess Quindrida's own abbey. Now, Abbas Quindrida was not willing to give up, and so she tried to stop the proceedings and destroy the boy's body by reading Psalm 108 backwards. And I'm not making that up. The Vitae tells us that she read it backwards like it was a Black Sabbath record. And then her eyes fell out, and she died. That's the story of St. Kenelm. Did I lose you there? This is what I'm talking about when I say our sources are terrible. We have stuff like this, 
land grants, and monks writing about dragons and dead ducks. It's kind of crazy, right? And actually, even the medieval writer William of Malmesbury was forced to acknowledge that the story really didn't fit well with history. But what does it tell us? Just like with the apocryphal story of Paul Revere, there are kernels of truth to be found. I mean, with Paul Revere, there was a ride, there was a horse, there was an approaching British army. So what are the bits of truth in this story? And what are the bits that are almost certainly false? Well, the first thing that jumps out to me is Quendrida. She seems like a misspelled version of Abbas Quenthrith, daughter of Conewulf, who was the Abbas of Winchcombe for a while, just like Abbas Quendrida. So she pretty much fits in perfectly. And actually, we're going to see Quenthrith and the church get into some pretty serious conflicts over land rights later on, so it's entirely likely that she was being slandered in this story, and that she wasn't an evil, murdering magician. Further, painting her as a wicked woman behind the evils of man fits well within the typical hagiography from the 11th and 12th centuries. Seriously, those old stories do not like women, and it's going to come up again and again as we move forward. Kenelm seems pretty clearly to be a parallel for Chinahelm. The names are pretty similar, and we do have that record that indicates that Chinahelm was the son of Conewulf, so he would be the brother of Quenthrith. However, he's really young in this story, far too young for him to already have possession of Glastonbury. So what's going on there? Well, again, this fits well within stories of saints' lives during this period. Having Kenelm be a small child ensures that he's an innocent. Honestly, there are all sorts of typical 11th and 12th century storytelling devices in this account. As shocking as the details are to us, for the audience at the time, they would be as expected as movies featuring cars exploding from minor fender benders. As such, there are many scholars who believe that Kenelm was Chinahelm. And what about Kenelm's killer? Askebird is a pretty unique name. And actually, it doesn't appear anywhere in the South during Conewulf's reign. Further, even if you look out 50 years before and after his reign, it still doesn't appear. Askebert is a weird name. But it does sound remarkably like Askebert. And Askebert was a Kentish noble that appears in the records confirming gifts to, of all people, Archbishop Wolfred. Now, Kentish nobles have been absent from the charters since 810 but perhaps they are finding other ways to influence politics in the South. And this is the part of the story that really does seem to ring true for me. You have Conewulf's brother dying while sitting on the throne of Kent. And then you have Chinahelm involved in Kentish politics and a story of his murder at the hands of a man who sounds very much like a known Kentish nobleman with ties to the archbishop that Conewulf just happened to be in conflict with. I could totally see how that would play out. But what about the sainthood? That is pretty odd. Well, actually, there are links there as well. Modern scholars are beginning to argue that a cult of St. Chinahelm was launched by Abbas Quenthrith at about 812 in order to grant more power to the minster of Winchcombe, which she, of course, controlled. We've seen that happen with other slain nobles, so there's no reason to believe that this would be any different. But given the static between Conewulf's family and Canterbury, you can imagine that the story of the martyrdom might have been changed over time. Maybe it opened up with him being killed by some Kentish noble, but given 300 years without it being written down, some people got their hands on it, 
and some details were removed while others were added in, along with a generous dollop of misogyny. I mean, consider that fact. It had over 300 years to marinate before being written down. And spoiler alert, Mercia would not hold on to that region for the full 300 years. So it isn't impossible that that marinade might have had a bit of anti-Mercian royalty bias in there as well. And what better way to denigrate a fallen rival dynasty than to indicate that they died out due to an evil kinslaying witch? I mean, if you were a West Saxon or Norman king, what would you prefer? People talking about Conewulf's dynasty as a powerful family that had good relations with the Pope and unified much of the South? Or would you like them to think, aren't they that coven of witches that killed that child saint? I know which one I'd go for. So those are the facts, and those are also my thoughts on those facts. So what do you think happened? Did Anand do it? Was it the male Kemp? This is one of those mysteries we don't know the answer to. But some of the things that we learned here will provide some much-needed context for a few events that will be coming in the next couple episodes. This mystery also highlights the level of danger that even the royal family of Mercia appear to have been in, with one brother dead and another possible son and heir murdered. It's getting dodgy over there. And also, I think the story does a good job of giving you a sense of the level of conflict between Conewulf and Kent, and even Canterbury itself. Because even if Wolfred wasn't involved, it looks like a Kentish nobleman was the one wielding the sword. This fight was getting ugly, and against all odds, it's gonna get worse. Alright, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join all our social communities, and we got a lot of them, and they all offer something different. And you can find links to all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Alright, thanks for listening. <laughs>